Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God and Father, we come to you now and pray that you would be near to us, that you would speak your word to us, for you alone have the words of eternal life. Pray that you would speak them to us, although we are sinful people, that you would speak them through me, though I am a sinful man. All by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There are two ways that you can fail to love a person. Two ways that you can say, I love you, but fail to actually be loving them. One is to say that you love someone, but not do any of the things that should come alongside that love, not care for them, not serve them, that you, you say with your mouth that you're loving them, but you're not acting it out. And that, that happens. And if you're in the middle of that, sometimes that can be hard to see, but Usually, at least from the outside, that is still a pretty obvious failure of love. However, there's another way to fail to love a person, too. In it, you, you say that you love them, and you actually do things that seem to express love, but the truth of your heart is that you don't actually love that person, but rather you're loving them in order to get something else. You're using them. Maybe the stereotypical example of that would be the relationships that people have with a wealthy relative in the family, where they say that they love this person and they act in different ways that are affectionate or spend time with them. But the truth is that all that those people are really after is their inheritance. They're not loving the person at all. And that might seem like an obvious failure of love, but it can happen more subtly in our hearts as well. One of the things that often convicted me in marriage was that there would be times that I would do things for my wife and show affection or be romantic to my wife, but really it's because there was something that I wanted out of it. You can fail to love someone, no matter what you say, in both of those ways. There are two ways that you can fail to love God, just like with people. One is to say that you love God, but to not act like you love God. That's, again, maybe the more obvious failure, but Scripture does speak against it, right? If you love me, you will do what I command you to do. The whole idea of loving and worshiping and following Jesus means that we're seeking to live like him and obey him and serve him. You can fail to love God in that way. 
But there's a deeper way that you can fail to love God as well. That you can say that you love God and even act out parts of what it looks like to love God, but that really you're doing it because you're actually in love with something else. And you're using God to try to get that thing. That you might convince others that you love him. You might even be convinced in yourself that you love him. But really, you're just using him. That is a hard truth. Hard because it is convicting to me. And hard because it implicates many of us as Christians. It forces us to take a hard look at our hearts. That it's easy to say, I love God. It's even, in a sense, easier to do outwardly Christian things. But if we're doing them and we're actually pursuing something other than God, we're still failing to actually love him. And I point that out because that is actually a theme of Jesus's ministry. Throughout the Gospels, what we find is that he is challenging both his original hearers and us as people who, many of whom would both say that they loved and followed God, and were doing many outwardly religious things. But he's saying that you need to recognize that your heart is in the wrong place, that what you're ultimately pursuing is something else. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I think we see some of that behind these stories that we read. And so first, I want us to name two truths in these stories that are meant to expose our hearts, meant to expose some of those ways that we can fail to love God. We're going to see that Jesus doesn't share our enemies, and Jesus doesn't share our ambitions. But then out of that, we're going to speak to a hopeful reality that we also see in these stories that offers us something much better and actually stirs up our love. First, though, Jesus does not share our enemies. If you start in verse 51, it says, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, this verse is really a turning point in the whole story of Jesus' life in the whole Gospel of Luke. And it's a turning point in terms of the narrative, but also geographically. Up to this point, Jesus has been ministering in Galilee. I'll show you a map here. Galilee is the northern part of Israel, and in the southern part there's Judea with Jerusalem, and then in between there is Samaria. And Jesus has been to Jerusalem before, but his preaching ministry and his miracles and stuff have mostly been in Galilee and in some Gentile areas that are nearby. Now, though, Jesus begins this long journey towards Jerusalem. And that's true just at the level of geography, but also at a deeper level, what that means is that he's beginning this long journey towards his own crucifixion and death. It's no accident that twice in Luke 9, leading up to this point, Jesus prophesies that he's about to be crucified. It says the time has come for Jesus to be taken up, which is another image of his death and resurrection and ascension. So Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem sets his face towards this work that he is coming to do. But along the way in Luke, while this is a turning point, there's going to be a lot of encounters. And we see our first few here. Pick up in verse 52. It says, Jesus sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So if you remember that map, as Jesus travels from Galilee to Jerusalem, Samaria lies in between. The thing to understand about Samaria is that the people who live in Samaria, the Samaritans, 
ethnically have Jewish heritage, but had also intermarried with Greeks and others who lived in the area. And religiously, while they would have claimed to worship the same God as Israel, they did not worship him according to the law and at the temple in Jerusalem, but instead they prayed to the golden calves that kings had erected in the Old Testament at these high places. And so on the one hand, they are sort of ethnically and religiously similar to the Israelites, but on the other hand, they're also different in these significant ways. And if you understand anything about humanity, you understand that that means that they and the Jews did not like each other. Some Jews would actually go around Samaria when they traveled between Galilee and Judea. But Jesus passes through it, and he sends his disciples ahead to make preparations. Probably that's simply because this is some small town, and Jesus is traveling with at least the twelve and the other women that traveled with him in his ministry and may well have had a larger group of disciples as well. And so, you know, a small ancient town isn't really prepared without preparation to receive that group. But Jesus comes to this town, and here's what happens in verse 53. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So the Samaritans refused to receive Jesus. On one level, that might just be because of broader political realities, We know actually that some Samaritans would rob and attack pilgrims going to Jerusalem, but probably it reflects a deeper reality about Jesus's purpose. His face being set towards Jerusalem is caught up in this reality that on the one hand, Jesus is coming to to save and work salvation for all people, but on the other hand, Jesus is Jewish and is the culmination of the story of the Old Testament, and his salvation starts with Israel and then spills over into the nations. And this is something the Samaritans would not have liked. There are actually several stories in the Gospels where Jesus interacts with Samaritans. He breaks his cultural norms by treating them lovingly and as valuable, but but oftentimes ethnicity actually crops up as a stumbling block in those conversations. For example, in John 4, you can read Jesus interacting with this Samaritan woman at a well, and he reveals himself to her and speaks with her, but there comes this point in the conversation where things get uncomfortable. And what she immediately does is start trying to talk about their ethnic differences and ask Jesus whether you're supposed to worship God in Jerusalem or in the high places. While in that story she ultimately comes to believe in Jesus, it is only after having those prejudices addressed. So the Samaritans reject Jesus here because of the fact that he is working a salvation that includes the Jews. They reject Jesus because he will not share their enemies. But that's not the end of the story. Keep reading. Verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. So the disciples are angry at the Samaritans' response, and so what do they want to do? Call down fire, rain destruction down on their heads. But Jesus rebukes them, because that is also a wrong response. Why is that wrong? Well, first, it is wrong because the disciples misunderstand God's character in that moment. They misunderstand the character of God. And let me just take a minute pause there. Um, You might notice if you are reading in older versions like the King James that there is an extra part of verse 55 and into verse 56. 
And if you have a newer translation, you might see down in the footnote that it notes it. And so first, a quick word of explanation about what's going on there. Um, this is going to be like a two-minute rabbit trail, but some of you I know will really appreciate this. So let's talk about biblical manuscripts. So the way that we have the Bible is because people copied it. Before printers, before even the printing press for 1,500 years, the way that you would get a book, like the, the, book, the books of the Bible, is that someone by hand would sit down and copy it out. And when people who were called scribes made those copies, they would make mistakes in copying the Bible. They would drop words or repeat words or accidentally skip down a line. And sometimes, although this is rarer, uh, in, in a lot of those ancient Bibles, people who owned them would then like write notes as they studied them in the margins, which you might do in your Bible. And sometimes those would even get copied into the biblical text. And you might be thinking, come on, how could somebody do that? I wouldn't make that mistake. But to that, I would just say, if you spent eight to 10 hours a day, six days a week, copying down texts, you would make those kinds of mistakes. And I explain that because that's what seems to have happened here, that someone made a note in the margins of, the, of a manuscript about this verse, and then it got copied into that manuscript and then got copied in later manuscripts coming from it. Now, I know that idea makes some of us uncomfortable because that means that some given manuscript of the Bible would have mistakes in it. And that's true. Here's the question, though. How do we know that we think that mistake happened? Why do we think that's what happened? Well, the answer is we don't just have one manuscript. We have thousands of manuscripts, including a number that are very close to the time of Jesus itself. And so what we can do, and what the church since its earliest days has always done, because we've always understood this, is that we've taken what manuscripts we have and we've compared them with each other to, to recognize times that those scribes would have made mistakes. And that's exactly what happened here. And the reason that in newer translations you'll find that as a footnote. Because um, in the two earliest papyri of Luke that we have, which are within 200 years of when Luke would have originally written it, this section isn't here. And in the four earliest complete collections of the New Testament that we have, uh, th this section isn't here, but then we see it appear in later manuscripts. And so um, so we've, we were able to recognize that that was something that was added, copied in later. And here's, here's the reason I'm taking a minute to address that. When you first encounter that idea in the Bible, I think that can actually make you uncomfortable because it makes you feel like the biblical text is less reliable. But the truth is that everything I just explained, that means that the text that you have in front of you is much more reliable, is much closer. We have, we have, can have a real confidence that this is what Luke wrote because of the fact that we have so many copies of it that we can compare. The fact that we know about issues like this one is actually an indication of why we can trust the Bible. That's it. All right. Stepping back from that rabbit trail. Misunderstanding the character of God. What's in that footnote, that, that, that note that somebody wrote in the early days of the church while studying the text, that is not the Bible, but I actually think it's helpful. It says, And Jesus said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. That is an idea that's repeated throughout the Bible. In John 3.17, right after the very famous John 3.16, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Same idea. 
which is to say that God's character does include judgment. Sin is destructive, and God will ultimately judge and defeat sin and those who do not turn from it. God's character includes judgment, but the heart of his character is mercy. It is salvation. The thing that God delights to do, the thing that he does most naturally, the thing closest to the heart of his being is to show grace and work restoration. And so the disciples are missing that when their immediate reaction to the Samaritan's rejection is to want to call down the fires of judgment. They miss God's character. But more importantly, I also think they misunderstand God's loyalty. They misunderstand whose side God is on, just like the Samaritans. It's pretty easy to see what the disciples are thinking. They're thinking, how dare they, those Samaritans, acting as if we're the bad guys. We know who the bad guys are. They are. And so, of course, Jesus is going to be on our side. He's not on their side because he's on our side. Come on, Jesus, let's call down the fire. The Samaritans hate the Jews, and the Jews hate the Samaritans, And both of them think that Jesus will take their side and support their hatred. And Jesus refuses. He will not share either group's enemy. And of course, he will not share ours. Part of the human condition is that even though we don't notice it, we identify ourselves not so much by what we do or by what we believe, as by who we dislike, by who our enemies are, by who the other group is that then tells us who we are and where our loyalties lie. What makes you an American or a Midwesterner or a member of a political party? While there are some positive parts of that, obviously, like a big part of it is simply that you're not like those other people. I'm not, you know, I'm a Midwesterner because I'm not you know, one of those coastal people or a southerner. I define myself over against them. And the reason that I'm naming that reality, that we often define ourselves by who our enemies are, is because when we talk about enemies, it's not just individuals that we're talking about. Some of us do absolutely have that coworker or that neighbor who maybe just personally dislikes us and is trying to make life miserable for us. But when scripture addresses our enemies, it's really talking about our hearts. It's saying, who are we defining as those people? Who are we defining ourselves over against? Those are the enemies that really matter the most to our hearts. And we have to realize that Jesus does not share those enemies. He does not define himself over against those people. And in fact, he's working salvation in a way that includes us and them. In Jesus' story, he has one group of enemies. Us. Humanity. We are all in our sin and rebellion against God, and we have wrecked his world. All of us are God's enemies, and what does Jesus do with enemies? He comes as one of them to seek them and save them and forgive them and transform them by his word. We are all God's enemies, and God loves us and dies for us in order to make us his friends. That is how Jesus treats us. That is the way Jesus in your life has pursued and loved you. And that person that you define yourself against, that person in the other group, that is how Jesus treats and loves that person too. 
One of the surest ways to fail to love God is by reducing the scope of his love. Remember, we, our ultimate thing that we're being wary of is ways that we can say we, that we love God, but really love something else. And in this case, what happens is that we say we love God, but we really we love ourselves or our group or our people. And we're using God as a prop to make us feel better about ourselves, to make us feel like we are the good guys. And that's actually a failure of love. So Jesus doesn't share our enemies. We fail to love him rightly if we miss that fact. And in addition, in these stories, Jesus would tell us that he doesn't share our ambitions. Jesus doesn't share our ambitions in this world. Pick up in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So in this section of Luke, we actually have three stories of just these brief interactions between individuals and Jesus. And in each of those cases, Jesus challenges the people. And especially what he's doing is he's challenging their hearts. It's actually really important in all of these to recognize that Jesus is seeing into their hearts. And in this first case, he is pointing out the fact that his followers are not promised a home or earthly security. Now, we're not given details about this conversation, but I think in reading this, we're supposed to assume that this is a challenge to the person who says it that Jesus is trying to expose a way that his loyalties are divided. And so Jesus is saying, concretely, if you're going to follow me, the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head, because Jesus is a traveling prophet. And also more deeply, that this world is not Jesus' home. If you follow him, it means that this world cannot be your home either. You'll have different priorities and a different identity and a different way of living than the people around you. Keep reading, second conversation. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So we need to talk a little bit more about this one because there's some debate about what's going on here. If this man's father had just died, on the one hand, this seems like a pretty crazy request by Jesus. Not least because the Old Testament law would require this man to to bury his father quickly and kind of go through this this process to to have him buried. If that's what Jesus is saying, this is a, a really extreme command and that could be it. But I don't think that's what's happening because what we just said, if this guy's father had just died, Israel law requires him actually to immediately go through this set of ceremonies and rituals and then barrier, which means he's probably not got all this free time to go out and listen to Jesus preach and ask to follow him. What's much more likely is that this guy's situation is that his father is elderly or not in great health. And he's saying, look, Jesus, like, it's not going to be that long, you know, months or year, a couple years. It's not going to be that long before my father dies. So let me wait until that point and bury him and then I'll follow you. He's saying, Jesus, I will eventually follow you but I've got to have these other priorities in my life dealt with first. And that is what I think Jesus is calling out for this guy. And he calls it out 
Uh, He's saying, you know, my kingdom, my calling to be a disciple, it's for now, not just for some future date. It's not something that you can just say, like, I'm going to take a rain check and come back to it later. There's an urgency and an immediacy to the call to be Jesus's disciple. And then the third conversation. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now that sounds like the hardest interaction because that does not seem like an unreasonable request. Let me go home and say goodbye to my family first. In fact, in 1 Kings in the Old Testament, when the prophet Elijah calls Elisha to to be a prophet, Elisha makes this very request and Elijah is fine with it. So again, this is probably an instance where we need to understand that Jesus is recognizing and addressing an issue in this guy's heart. And I think that's what he highlights when he talks about, he uses this image of putting your hand to the plow and looking back. I think the right way to understand that image, it's not like, you know, you walk up to a plow and you glance over your shoulder and no, that's bad. Instead, plowing, what you would have is you would have ox or whatever that were dragging this plow to make a furrow in the ground. And while I've, this is not from personal experience, as I understand it, to do it well, it worked sort of like mowing your lawn, right? If, if you're mowing your lawn, you know that what you're doing is you're pushing the lawnmower and you're looking ahead down the path to make a straight line with it. And Jesus is saying that what you can't do to plow a field well is to be pushing the plow while you're walking, looking over your shoulder at something else. And that is what he says is happening in the heart of this guy, that that his heart is divided between his loyalty to his family and his earthly commitments and the call to follow Jesus in a way that means that Jesus recognizes that unless he turns from that, his discipleship is always going to be this sort of stumbling thing with his gaze over his shoulder. Now, we're not told in any of these stories how the people respond, and I think that's intentional because it's supposed to invite us to wrestle with these questions. But it's clear that what Jesus is trying to do is to challenge the way these people's hearts are divided. Or more specifically, that he's trying to remind them that he does not share their ambitions in this world. That he comes with a purpose to glorify God, to serve people, to build up his kingdom, and that if we love him, we are called to that same purpose, and that is then meant to become the purpose of our lives instead of taking him and trying to use him to serve some other purpose that we actually have in our hearts. Here's a hard question. Is Jesus your end, or is he a means to some other end? Is Jesus your goal, or is he simply something that you're using to achieve another goal? A passage that I come back to often in my own walk is from Philippians 3. The Apostle Paul talks about all of the worldly things that he has lost and given up to follow Jesus. And then he says this. He says, Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. That's the calling of a disciple, to count everything else as loss because of the all-surpassing worth 
of knowing Jesus Christ. So what things in your heart is that not true of? What are the areas that you are not willing to count as loss? Is it your comfort, your career, certain relationships, your reputation? I ask that, and you don't have to feel defensive because we all have those things. This is the, the process of learning to follow Jesus is the process of coming to recognize and wrestle with and then ultimately die to those things in our hearts. And that's at times a slow and painful process, but that's what we're called to do. If we are going to, if we are called to love Jesus more than anything, then there cannot be anything else that we love more than him. If we are to follow Jesus, we cannot do it while our gaze is fixed on some other thing. That is the calling of discipleship. Now let me just take a minute, because again, that's a hard calling, and try to clarify what that does and does not mean. When we say that, I think you might hear that wrong. Some Christians do. That is not saying that the, the other things you love in the world, that, um, that is somehow bad that you love him. God gives good gifts to us, and it's not wrong that we delight in, or enjoy those things. Jesus isn't saying that having a home or burying a parent or loving your family is somehow wrong, but Scripture insists that we must properly order our loves, that every love in Scripture, every love in our lives has a proper place, and when it loses that proper place, it actually destroys our love for other things. And let me put aside the question of God. I'll just show that to you in a, in a completely different normal life area. I love my children and I love certain hobbies that I have. I love my children and I love my hobbies. And those things are both true, but there is a necessary and proper order to those things. And if I love my hobbies more than I love my children, then I'm actually not loving my children at all. I mean, man, that, 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 that totally is bad for kids, right? They're, they feel neglected. They feel unimportant and diminished. The only way I can actually love both of those things is to love my children more and at times sacrifice my hobbies and things that I'm going to do for fun because of my love for my children. That's the only way I can love both of those things is for them to be in their proper place. God is to be our ultimate love. And that does not mean that we cannot love other things in our lives, but it does mean that if, that if we elevate any of those things to be equal to or above God, then we are actually no longer loving God. And the only way that they can have their proper place is to then recognize that there are going to be times when they are in tension with our call to love God and that we're going to have to sacrifice those other things. That's really what we have to watch for. Those times when our love for God and our love for something else in this world are in conflict with each other. Which do we choose? Because that reveals how our loves have been ordered. And if God is not at the center of our hearts, then we aren't really loving him as he ought. Instead, that's the way that God ends up becoming a means to some other end. So Jesus does not exist to share and support our other ambitions. They find a good place within his love, but he does not exist to serve those things. He calls us instead to make him our highest ambition and then to find those other loves in their proper place under him. So here's the question that I have coming out of all of that. 
We are called to love Jesus more than anything else. We're called to turn from trying to make him just support either our hatred for our enemies or our worldly ambitions. But how can we actually do that in our hearts? How can our love for Jesus grow? A big part of how we come to understand the answer to that question, a big part of how our hearts actually come to change is to recognize that while Jesus tells us these things he will not share, that's happening within the context of Jesus sharing himself. Jesus shares himself. We get a little bit of that even in this reading. If you look at verse 62 again, what Jesus says is no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So Jesus talks about this wholehearted dedication that we are called to have to him as his disciples. But that language also echoes the very beginning of our reading in verse 51. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You know who embodies a determination to love, who sets his face to the task that he has and does not look over his shoulder? It's Jesus as he sets himself to the task and calling of dying for us. Throughout this whole chapter of Luke, there's two new things that have happened in terms of how uh, the gospel unfolds. One is that Jesus intensifies his call to discipleship. He has these people that are following him and he starts speaking to them about the hardness of that calling and the seriousness of that calling. But he does that within the context of the other new thing, which is that this is where he starts clearly proclaiming his own death for them. It's precisely at the point where Jesus speaks about his cross that he then says, take up your cross and follow me. The call to discipleship always and only finds its proper place within the love that Jesus shows to us and the salvation he works on our behalf. The call to discipleship only finds its proper place within the context of the love that Jesus first shows to us. And we need to see that because there's this thing that can happen to us when we recognize that we love earthly things more than Jesus. We can see that and we can grieve it even and recognize that our loves are out of order and even maybe hate that fact about ourselves. But none of that will actually change how we feel. We cannot simply sort of grieve our way into loving God. So how do we do it? How do our hearts start to change to put God back in that central place of love? The Scottish thinker Thomas Chalmers once gave a very sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You can go read it online if you want. But basically, he says, there's two ways that you can change people's hearts. The first way is to try to just convince them that sin is bad that the world is worthless. You can just try to attack their desire for sin. And I think a lot of Christians spend a lot of time doing that. And it's not bad inherently, but, um, but the problem is, and Chalmers points this out, that that doesn't really work because all you're trying to do is attack a desire, uh, you know, and, and it's like creating a vacuum, right? <laughs> right? That, that it, it, you're just trying to suck the sinful desire out but there's nothing left behind, and so it either rushes right back in or some other sinful desire rushes in to take its place. Instead, Chalmers says, there is another way to change the heart. 
And basically it works like this. Imagine you have a glass container, right? You've got this glass container and you have all the equipment and technology in the world. And the question you're asked is, what's the easiest way to take the air out of this container? The answer is to fill it up with water or with something else. That yeah, you could try to rig up some machine to suck all the air out and again create that vacuum, but that's going to take a lot of work. It's far easier to change or to fill this container simply by filling it with something else. And Chalmers says that our hearts work the same way. That you remove the desire for sin by replacing it with desire for God. He says the love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. But may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself? He says the way to stop desiring sin is to replace it with the desire for God. But Chalmers doesn't just stop there because then he recognizes there's a second question, which is how do we gain that desire for God? What does it look like to fill it up with you know, with, with water? Because it's not a simple, desire is not just an idea, right? I don't just like think my way into desiring ice cream. And I don't think my way into desiring Jesus. The answer in scripture and the answer Chalmers gives in that sermon is that the way that we fill ourselves up with that new desire is by being reminded of the gospel, the good news of God's love acted out for us in Jesus Christ. His free grace, his cross, his pursuit of us As Chalmers puts it, he says, the way of expelling from the heart the love which transgresses the law is to admit into its receptacles the love which fulfills the law, meaning the love that God acted out in Jesus by dying for us. The way that you grow in love for God, the way that your love becomes more undivided and he's more put in that place of ultimate authority is by experiencing and returning again and again to the reality of his love for you. So as we close this week, I'm just going to invite you to reflect on two things. Reflect on two questions. One is, in what ways have you let your love for God actually be love for something else? In what ways have you used God to make you feel good in the face of your enemies, In what ways have you used him to serve your worldly ambitions? Name that first, because you do have to name that. That is part of the process of change. If we don't recognize that our desires are disordered, we're not going to understand that we need to replace them with something else. But as you answer that question, and then as you name those areas, in those areas, then ask this question, how has God loved me? How has he been generous to me, gracious to me, near to me, faithful to me? Name where your love falls short and then name in those same places the love that God has shown to you. Because as you do that, as you apply the love of Jesus to your hearts, then true love for him will begin to blossom there as well. Let's pray. Father, I confess that I that we here gathered together in worship, that we as your church have too often confused the love of you with using you to serve some love of an earthly good. Lord, I confess that those idolatries exist within my heart. If 
Father, I pray that you would forgive us for those things, first of all. Break us of them. Show us the way that our loves are out of order. And then I pray, Father, in that, that you would speak your love to us. Let us see the answer to that brokenness and sin in Jesus and his cross and his determination to work our salvation. Minister your grace and love to us. And so let our hearts begin to change, that we might more fully love and follow you as we should. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.